I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. And I do hope that you have your Bibles today. You know, I often make the comment that when you come to Berean Baptist Church, that you need your Bible because this is the textbook of every message that's going to be preached from this sermon. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago, I think it was out on the vestibule, and they told me that on one Sunday morning, the pastor of their church took a newspaper out, and he actually had copies for everybody in the congregation, copies of the newspaper that he passed out to everybody, because that morning he was going to preach from the newspaper. I promise you I'm not anytime soon going to preach from the newspaper. And that's because we have in our hands right here a timeless book. God's Word is relevant to us. God's Word is the book that we live by. It's relevant for your life. It's as relevant as the newspaper that you read every day. It's as current as anything that rolls off the printing presses. And I promise you that you can trust it more than anything that you can read. The Bible is relevant for your life because it's God's book. It's an eternal book. Its words are forever settled in heaven. And this is the book by which you will be judged. And so I urge you to read it and to know it very well. And as we study the Word today, we're, we're studying Christ's viewpoint of the Scriptures. What did Jesus really think about the Bible? Now, we, we may think that's a foolish question to ask. If Jesus is the Son of God and the Scriptures are the Word of God... Shouldn't Jesus have a very high view of Scripture? And that may seem like a foolish question to us who are members of Berean Baptist Church or those of you that are Christians here today. You know the Lord is your Savior. That might seem foolish to us, but in the time of Jesus, that was a very important question. And that's because when Jesus came, he was preaching something that was radically different from what the people had heard before. And so when they heard him speak, they questioned, what does he really think about Scripture? Scribes and the Pharisees were their teachers, and the people had been to the synagogues. They had listened to what scribes and Pharisees had to say. They heard their explanations of God's Word. But what they heard was not the truth, and so the people were confused. And when Jesus came along teaching something that was very different from what they heard, they thought, well, that can't be correct. And so Jesus must have a very poor view of the Scripture because he's not actually preaching what the Word of God says. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made it very clear what he thought about the law and the prophets. And so we find here in these verses that we read today his explanation of God's holy Word. I'd like you to read this with me, if you would, please. Let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. In Matthew chapter 5, we begin in verse number 17. As Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We 
ask that you bless this message. Help us to learn from your word. May we see, Lord, the scriptures are truly your word. They must be obeyed. They must be the rule for our life. And we ask you, Lord, you bless us as we explain it today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is the third on these particular four verses. And I want to take just a moment to catch you up on some things that we've talked about thus far. We notice in verse number 17 that Jesus makes a very clear, upfront, unequivocal statement about how he viewed God's Word. His teachings were, were different, but he didn't want the people to think that for a moment that he had come to actually change things and that the law of God was no longer binding upon them. And so he says, don't think that I have come to destroy the law. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And in that statement, we see his exaltation of the Scripture. Jesus believed that the Holy Scriptures were the standard for God's people. Uh, The Bible is the foundation of doctrine. It's the basis for all of our religious practice. In the Word of God, we find out who God is. We find out about His plan and purpose for this world. In this Word, we have revealed God's plan of redemption for this entire world. And I might add today that that is God's perfect plan. It doesn't need anything to be added to it. It was devised by God, so there are no additions or corrections that need to be made. There is no input into God's Word that needs to be placed there by man. We simply cannot help the Word of God to be any better. It's perfect and it's infallible. And so when the Pharisees came along and they started adding to what God said, they put something in there that Jesus would not support. And this is where all that confusion came from. Because Jesus would absolutely support everything that God's Word says, everything that God intended. He was going to uphold that, but He was not for a moment going to uphold any additions that people had put there and said that you must follow this because this is what God says. And so Jesus had to differentiate between what God intended and what the Pharisees had added. So Jesus said, I'm not taking anything out of the Word. I'm going to uphold it all. And so he said, I have come to fulfill it. And when he spoke that, he meant that the Old Testament Scriptures spoke of him. He was actually the fulfillment of Scripture. And so whatever part of God's law that you look at, whether it's the ceremonial law, the judicial law, or the moral laws of God, Jesus came to fulfill it all. Now, unfortunately, there are some people that are confused by what Jesus means when he says that I have come to fulfill Scripture. And they think it means something like this, that here we have the Old Testament, and what Jesus has come to do is to make things fuller. Jesus has come to explain the Old Testament, to fill things out, to put in all the missing parts, and he's going to tie up the loose ends. That's not what Jesus means at all. Jesus meant that the Scriptures spoke about him, and he came to carry out each and every demand of God's law right down to the finest details. And he exalted the Scriptures so highly that he says that there's not one small part of it that's going to go without exact fulfillment. And that's because God's Word is the index of truth for all of His dealings with man. And so that tells us that if you pass on the Bible, if you think that the Bible is unimportant, then it doesn't matter whether we get up and we preach from the newspaper or preach from the Word of God, then you really don't understand 
what it means to regard God's holy word as the only way of salvation. You have, in fact, when a preacher stands up and begins to preach anything other than the word of God, he has abandoned the scriptures, the way that man can be saved. That's what we find out about in the Bible. That is Christ's exaltation of scripture. And then he moved on from there, and he began to speak about the preservation of Scripture. Verse 18 says, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That one jot and one tittle, that gives us Christ's intention to uphold every detail of the Scripture. Now, the way we would say that, we would say something like this. We would say, well, I'm going to uphold it right down to the very letter. But Jesus even took it a step further than that because he said, I'm going to uphold the law right down to the commas and the periods. I'm going to uphold the law right down to the dots that are over the I's and the T's, the crosses across the T's. So Jesus exalted God's word, and then he also said it's preserved. He spoke about the permanence of God's word. He tells us God's word is never going out of existence. It's not passe. It is preserved so that we live by the word of God as much today as men have ever lived by it. And so when Christ promised that he would fulfill the law, he was, in effect, stating three very important characteristics of God's word. He spoke of God's word and its authority. He said that it's absolute, and he said that it's accurate. The scriptures have authority. When Jesus rebuked Satan, he appealed to the authority of scripture. The faith that we have in Christ, the the faith that we believe, that we believe in order to be saved, comes under the authority of the Bible. Faith can't be what I define it to be. It can't be what you define it to be. If faith is that way, then what you say and what your opinion says is as good as my opinion and does it really respect what God says. Now, if the Son of God himself went straight to the Scriptures to prove many of his points, if he used that as the underlying theme of all of his teachings, then he believed that the Word of God was as binding on him as it was on us. Now, that might seem like a strange statement for me to say, that that the Word of God is actually binding on Christ. I mean, he's the omnipotent. How can something bind Christ? But isn't that exactly what he's teaching here? Christ lived by the law. The law is holy and righteous and good. And so in order for Christ to prove his righteousness, he lived by the law because that means he's holy and righteous and good. He lived by the perfect authority of God's Word. And then he also taught that God's word is absolute. It's the only authority. You can't put anything up next to God's word and say that it has equal authority. Now, some have tried to do that. Catholicism tries to do that with their edicts and their councils and their, and their papal bulls and all of their traditions. They try to make what they say equal to what God said. The Mormons try to do that when they give out the Book of Mormon. They believe that has as much authority as God's Word has. And the Jehovah Witnesses do it when they pass out the watchtower. They say that it has authority, an equal authority to God's Word. But the Word of God is the absolute authority. There is no other court of appeal. Then also Jesus taught that the Word is accurate. He spoke from Moses and the prophets. And so that meant that Jesus upheld every miracle that you read about in the Bible. He upheld every one of those supernatural occurrences. He taught that Adam and Eve were real people, that God did create the heavens and the earth. 
And he never allowed for a moment that there could ever be a mistake or one single untruth in all of Scripture. And so it comes down to this, that if we are going to believe Christ, if we're going to trust him as the Son of God, then we also have to believe every word that's in the Bible. We cannot doubt it. We cannot dispute this. It must be God's word because Jesus declared it to be so. He taught it as God's word. He said God's word is preserved for all time. And so to believe Christ is also to believe the words of Scripture. And if you doubt any word of the Bible, then you must at the same time doubt the truthfulness of the Son of God. Well, that brings us then to verse number 19. Having held up the word of God and exalted it and then declaring its preservation and its permanence for all time, Now Jesus moves to some conclusions. He says in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Jesus' teachings on the Word of God, there's the exaltation of the Scripture, there's the preservation of Scripture, and now he comes to the application of, of Scripture. We are commanded to obey the Scriptures and to teach others to do also. Well, that seems to involve us in a dilemma, doesn't it? What does Jesus mean when he speaks about breaking the commandments? What about all those laws that we find in the Old Testament that have to do with with sacrifices? What about all the laws that have to do with clothing and the diet of the people of Israel? And then what about grace? Hasn't grace actually released us from being bound to the law? Doesn't the law no longer have any effect on us because we're now under grace? Let's go back and let's look at these different aspects of the law. We have the ceremonial law and we have the judicial law and the moral law to contend with. And so when we look into the Old Testament and we see all these things that were written, written, what is Christ referring to? Which laws are we to keep and which laws can we say we no longer have to keep? Well, let's start with the ceremonial law. Why don't we make sacrifices today? Well, the ceremonial law is passed because of the cross. Ceremonial laws have to do with all of those sacrifices. Now, there's not a Christian here this morning who doesn't understand that Christ made a sacrifice for our sins. The very simplest gospel presentation that we make to any person is to tell them that they are sinners and that Christ came to die in their place to satisfy God for their sins. Now, maybe you don't understand all the theological terms that go along with that, but basically what we're speaking about here is the atonement of Christ, the doctrine of the atonement. The sacrifice of Christ was made in order to atone God for our sins. And what that simply means is that when Christ went to that cross, when he died there, he satisfied God because of our sins. Now, in the Old Testament, God gave a system of laws that had to do with sacrifice. The people understood that they were sinners and God wasn't pleased with them because of their sin. Uh, Scripture says that sin is the transgression of God's law. And so in order to set aside the wrath of God because of sin, God gave them a system of sacrifice. And every sacrifice that they made pointed to the time when Christ would come, when he would go to the cross, and he would be the once-for-all final sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. None of the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament could actually take away anyone's sins. 
they were an expression that God himself would one day come and he would take away sin forever. Now, I want you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll look at an explanation of this. Hebrews is the definitive book of Scripture that has to do with Christ's satisfaction for sin and how that Christ fulfilled God's law. If you'll look in Hebrews chapter 10, I want to start reading in verse number 1. And the writer here is explaining those Old Testament sacrifices and what Christ came to do. And he says in verse number 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Now the argument from the uh, book of Hebrews is that the Old Testament sacrifices were an image or they are a picture of the sacrifices that was coming. Now, if there was a sacrifice that could take away sin forever, then there was only one sacrifice that needed to be made. But in fact, we know by reading the Old Testament, there were many sacrifices made year by year. They continually made all these thousands of sacrifices, and the fact that they kept on making them was proof that there was not a sacrifice given that could take away sins forever. Now, it's critical to our whole understanding of the sacrificial system that we realize the connection that that has with God's law. Now, some people attach great sentimentality to the cross, and they think that the cross is supposed to soften our hard hearts because we see there that God has given such a great display of love. And the love of God is certainly shown by God giving his only begotten son to die for our sins. If that weren't true, then we would have to take John 3.16 out of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the love of God is certainly an important part of what happened at the cross, but it's much, much more significant what happened there than just the love of God because what would happen on the cross was a display of God's justice. God said there is a penalty for breaking my law, and God has determined that the penalty for breaking his law is death. He never sets aside his justice because of love. If he did, then Jesus would not have needed to go to the cross because then God would simply have forgiven us because of love. He said, I love you so much, I'm just going to overlook your sin, and I'm going to let you go free. But God did not forgive us for love's sake. He forgave us because his justice was satisfied. The penalty for sin was satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ. So the basis of our forgiveness is not the love of God. The basis is the forgiveness of God. And that's because Christ has paid that penalty for us. Now we go back to the Hebrews, a book of Hebrews once again in this 10th chapter, and we find here that Christ's death has ended the necessity for all of the animal sacrifices. In verse number 5 of chapter 10, it says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, that's speaking of Christ, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hadst no pleasure. Then, said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. 
Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. And that simply means that all the sacrifices that were made would not satisfy God. Something greater has to be done. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So that tells us that the sacrifice on the cross was the once for all payment for our sins. And all of these laws that we have in the Old Testament were not done away with arbitrarily, but they're done away with because they have been fulfilled in Christ. So that takes care of one aspect of the law. The ceremonial law is fulfilled. And so we don't teach people that to obey God, you have to keep on making sacrifices. And by the way, folks, that is the exact reason why we do not celebrate the Mass. The body and blood of Jesus Christ was given one time for our sins. And so we don't need to repeat his sacrifice every week. Now then, what about the judicial law? What happens to that? Well, the judicial law is passed because of the church. Now, let's review for just a moment the judicial law. The judicial law, those laws are those laws that were kept by Israel that separated them from every other people group in the world. In the Old Testament, God set aside Israel as the one nation that he was going to give his special blessings. And God kept them separate by giving them different laws and Things like, he said, you can't intermarry with people who are outside because if you intermarry, you'll be tempted to fall into idolatry. And that, in fact, did happen when they broke God's law. He gave them laws concerning their diet, and so they were kosher. There were certain things that they could eat and things that they couldn't eat. When you have the chance, if you write down this reference in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14... You'll find there a list of animals that they could eat and ones that they couldn't eat. For example, they could eat a deer, but they couldn't eat a camel. And they could only eat that deer if they killed it. They couldn't eat it if it died on its own. They could eat a fish with scales, but they couldn't eat an eel. They could eat a dove, but they couldn't eat a buzzard. They could eat a grasshopper, but they couldn't eat a fly. And on and on it goes from there. Then their clothing had to be different. They couldn't mix and match different types of clothing. They couldn't mix wool with linen. That'd be like me telling you ladies, before you can come into the church today, you better check the labels on your clothing. You can't mix a wool top with a linen skirt. If you do, you're out of here. So all those laws were given. They said things like you can't plow with an ox and a donkey. You can't put those two together. So these are laws that kept Israel separate from all the other people that were around them. Well, what happened, though, when Jesus came? What happened in the New Testament? Well, Jesus came, and he preached the kingdom to the Jews, but the Jews rejected it. Jesus came to save the world. That's what the Old Testament said about him, which means that both Jews and Gentiles would be brought into a new covenant with God. And so God set aside the nation of Israel... And Christ came to be the head of the church. And that includes people of all races and all nationalities. Just like we have here in Berean Baptist Church. I see Charlotte over there. She is an Indian of one type. And Joseph over here is an Indian of another type. And uh, we have Koreans. We have Filipinos. We have 
Spanish or Hispanic people, and we have Caucasian people. That's what the church is made up of. It's made of all different kinds of people. Now, it was hard, though, for the Jews to give up that exclusivity. And so you had people like the Apostle Peter. When he was told that, Peter, you need to go preach to a Gentile. You need to give him the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Peter had a very difficult time with that. He wasn't ready to go preach to Gentile people because he thought the gospel could only be given to the Jews. But Jesus came to change all of that. So... When Peter was told to go preach to the Gentile Cornelius, he had to have an object lesson to show him that it was all right to preach the gospel to Gentiles. Now, this is what we read about in Acts chapter 10. And a moment ago, we were reading in Acts chapter 11, which was the outcome of that when uh, Peter presented his case before the council at Jerusalem. But here in Acts chapter 10, it says, On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city... Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, do you see that? All of those different animals were there before Peter, and Peter, being a good Jew, would not eat those. And that's because he was living by those laws of separation. He believed that God would only honor him, and he would only honor God if he kept all of those laws of separation and not eat those different kinds of animals. But God was about to show him that he'd set aside those judicial laws that separated Israel from other nations. And so the voice comes and speaks to him again. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. So the object lesson was to show Peter that it's okay. You can go preach the gospel to the Gentiles because God is going to include all people in his church. Now listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For he is our peace who hath made both one, that's speaking of Jews and Gentiles, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. That's all of those laws that they kept, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh, for through him we both have access. Jew and Gentile have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And so there you see, you have the whole church together. Jews and Gentiles now stand on common ground in the faith of Christ. And so now all those judicial laws are passed, And God doesn't have a church that's based upon nationality or upon races. But God has changed all that and brought all people in under the covenant of grace who trust in him. So just like the ceremonial laws, the judicial laws have been fulfilled by Christ. Now that leaves us with one more set of laws. 
When Jesus says that we must obey the commandments, then what does he mean? How does that apply? Well, thirdly, the moral law is present for the Christian. When you get right down to the nitty-gritty of this, the moral law is what underlies every law that God ever gave. It backs up the ceremonial law and the judicial law. The moral law is a display of God's character. And so when God gave the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws, those were given to set uh, the people before their eyes a special characterization of God. And so when the ceremonial laws and the judicial laws are done away with and they're peeled away, what you find underneath it is the ever-abiding, interminable, immutable law of God. Now, all the other laws could cease because those were just outgrowths of this law. And so when they were fulfilled by Christ, they could be taken away to bring us right down to the very bedrock of our faith. It's the law of God that underlies our faith. And when Christ went to the cross, he was operating under the moral law of God. Punishment was exacted upon Christ because a moral standard has to be kept at all costs. It's not going to fade. It's not going to pass out of existence. Everything that Christ did had the moral law at its heart. But what is the moral law? Where do we find those laws in the Bible? Well, interestingly enough, until a few years ago, you could go into any public building in America and you could find the moral law of God. You could go into schools across our country and there you would find the moral law of God. Today, if you post the moral law of God in any public place, you're going to be sued every which way from Sunday because you can't do that any longer. What is the moral law? That's God's Ten Commandments. It's the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel way back there in Exodus chapter 20. That's the moral law of God. And so you say, thank God. I am so relieved now because that is so easy. God has done away with all those thousands of laws that are in the Old Testament, and now I only have to keep ten. I hate to burst your bubble, folks. But those ten are the underlying foundation of everything. They cover it all. They cover all the sins that you could ever commit and all the sins you don't even, sins you don't even know about that you commit. It covers everything. Everything comes under the Ten Commandments. And every one of those Ten Commandments must be kept by Christians. Now, maybe I ought to really state that in another way and broaden it out because the real truth of the matter, every single one of those Ten Commandments is binding upon every person on planet Earth. And so there are some who think, well, I'm not a religious person. I don't believe in God, so I'm exempt from the Ten Commandments. Do you think God cares what you think? Man, do you, do you think that God's going to let you off because you don't believe in him? Oh, let me in on, uh, uh, let you in on another strange statement you might think, and that is, you may not believe in God, but he certainly believes in you. And he may not be real to you, but you are definitely real to him. And he's going to judge you by every word that's written in this Bible. Jesus exalted the word of God. He said it's the preserved eternal word, and there's to be an application of that word to every single person in this world. That's a tough demand. And those Ten Commandments have been a hang-up for every single person who wants to see God. You see, to get to God, you have to go through those commandments. Now, I know somebody out there, you may want to stop me and say, Oh, wait just a minute, preacher. Wait a minute, Pastor, you're saying that people are saved by the keeping of commandments. 
Now, if I'm saying that, then I'm teaching right now that there's not one person on this planet who could ever be saved. God demands that you keep his commandments, but you can't keep them. Well, is God too demanding? Does God have the right to command me to do something that I can't do? How do you answer that question? Does God have the right to command me to do what I can't do? Well, think of the converse of the statement. Did God ever say, well, it's okay. I realize that this is very difficult, so you don't have to keep all of the commandments. What would that that do? If God said you don't have to keep keep all the commandments, what would that do to this world? What kind of world would we live in? Does that mean that we can be saved by sinning more and more? Of course God has the right to command that we do what we can't do. It doesn't make sense in any other way. But here is where a gracious act of God, sending his only son into the world, changes everything. He came to do what we can't do. Now, I said that you have to go straight through those Ten Commandments to be saved. And when you come up flush against the Ten Commandments, you know what happens? You realize your utter helplessness. God says, you have to be absolutely perfect. And yet there's no person in the world who is perfect. So where does that leave you? Well, let's listen to what Paul says about the law of God. Did Jesus ever abrogate the law? Did he ever say to anyone, well, you don't have to keep it? Did he ever say to the Jews, I'm going to set aside the law? I have no regard for it? Listen to what Paul says. In Galatians chapter 3, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been given had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which afterwards should be revealed. Wherefore, what? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now let me distill that for you. Jesus would not do away with the law because the law points out the sinfulness of man and it leaves him with no other recourse but to flee to the cross. If he is going to be saved, he has got to find someone who will protect him from the curse of the law. None of us is perfect, and so if perfection is required, what are we going to do? Well, we have to go to the one who fulfilled all of the law. We have to go to the one who kept all of God's laws perfectly. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And the wonderful thing about the grace of God, about the mercy of God, is that God has agreed to let let the obedience of Christ stand good for us. He allows it to be a substitute. Christ's perfect obedience substitutes for our imperfect obedience. And the way that you get that perfect obedience is by faith. Christ is not going to do away with the law because the law shows us that we can't be saved any other way than by faith. And so, friend, if you're going to be saved, you have to go to the cross of Christ. It was in the cross that all of our sins were judged. Christ took the punishment for all who would believe in him. And when your sins are transferred to Christ by faith, at the same time, his righteousness is transferred to you. So you have a responsibility to keep God's moral law, but there's only one way that you can do it. And the only way that you can is by faith in Christ. Christ did not come to do away with the law. Grace has never relieved anyone 
of the responsibility to do the whole law. Grace only makes it possible that you can do it through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I would invite you to do today. I invite you to place your faith in Christ, and that's because you're hopeless without him. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. You must be punished by eternal death in the fires of hell. We still teach it here. You must be punished there because you have broken God's law. But I can tell you that I and every Christian here who has put their faith in Christ stands justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have faith in that sacrifice that Christ has paid that penalty. And he paid the penalty for you if you trust him. Now, friends, I can't preach anything less than what Jesus preached. He said you have to be perfect. He said perfect obedience is required, and there's only one person who has ever been perfectly obedient to all of God's law, and that was Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the ceremonial law, the judicial law, and the moral law that we might be brought to God through faith in him. That is God's way. And I want to tell you today, it's God's way or it's no way. You won't be justified any other way. You won't stand right before God any other way except by faith in Jesus Christ. If you are to be saved, you must go to the cross. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we look at Christ's exaltation of the law, his teachings on the preservation of the law, and certainly this application of it. And as he teaches about the law of God, he leaves us all in utter hopelessness to be able to come to God on our own. There is no way that we can ever be righteous before God because we are all sinners justly condemned because we have broken God's law. And so we see that the only way that we can come is through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting his blood and his blood alone to save us from the eternal fires of hell. I ask you, Lord, that you would speak to some person here today who doesn't know you as Savior. May they meet with people in our back of the auditorium today that would be happy to discuss these matters of salvation. And I just ask you, Lord, you might direct someone there. We pray for Christians today that we all might realize continually, every single day of our lives, we can never approach God if not for Jesus Christ. Lord, may that be the the impetus behind our desire to serve him in all that we do. And Lord, I just ask you to speak to some person's heart today who may need to follow the Lord in baptism, to be obedient there, or to uh, become a part of your church and to be a play, in a place where the word of God is taught in the truth, in truth and in, and in righteousness. Lord, we just ask you to speak with people today. And then if there's anyone here today who needs to be prayed with, who have problems and things going on in their life that they need someone to talk to, Lord, we have people for that as well. We just ask you that you would speak to our hearts, help us to understand this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He paid it all, even as we're about to sing. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please